Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Health Care on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. We doctors are able to give patients modern-day miracles because we have fabulous medications, things that just didn't exist 10, 20 years ago. These medicines often make the news, however, because of side effects. Avandia was one of the latest drugs to make big-time news about concerns about cardiovascular risks. Who's looking out for us? Well, of course, we know the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, is looking out for us. They analyze mountains of data about new and existing medications. But who comes up with these data? Is it the FDA? Is it the drug company? How can they really tell if this drug is safe or not? To speak to us about this today, we have Dr. Sandra Queter. She is Deputy Director of the Office of New Drugs in the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. Dr. Queter, thank you so much for being on the program today. You know, the public looks at the drugs, and boy, these are important enough to make front-page news stories. Some people are thinking... The FDA stands in the way of drugs that help people. Other people are thinking we're not being protected enough. This is a difficult job you have. What's involved in in getting drugs past the FDA? Well, getting drugs past the FDA is, uh, is, is probably, in some people's minds, an incredibly formidable task. And I think that's just as it should be. Our job is to turn over every stone about a new drug oversee it as the as as the product is developing oversee the clinical trials of the drug and assure that uh subjects in the clinical trials particularly in, including normal volunteers but increasingly patients who uh sign up for those studies are cared for and put in, and not put in an unsafe circumstance well you know you mentioned clinical trials Let's start off by making sure the the audience knows what we mean by that. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, before any drug goes to is is allowed to be put on the market in today's world, they have to be tested. It, many people think that FDA tests drugs. We do not. Um, it's what we do is we oversee the work of others who are studying the drugs or testing them, and then we assess the information that those other groups, usually uh, pharmaceutical companies or academic um, researchers, put together and make a decision about whether or not the drug should be allowed to be marketed or not. So, so the tests are actually done by the drug companies. 
Well, they are funded by the drug companies. The drug companies are, um, you know, they don't have, you know, drug company A building within which they test all of their products. They usually fund researchers to do the studies themselves. Well, it sounds more complicated than one would think. Some people might thought, well, gee, shouldn't the government be doing the testing? Uh, Maybe out of concern that uh, the drug company would have so much conflict that they would be inclined um, to cheat on the testing. But in essence, they're not doing the testing either. They're outsourcing it to someone else. Exactly. And you know, I, I think that that system in and, of, in and of itself has a fair amount of protections. Um, in fact, there are all kinds of requirements and regulations put in place by us at the FDA that guide that type of testing that are specifically in there to protect people who sign up to be in those studies. And it's not just FDA, but every research institution um, has other rules that they have to follow put in place by the government to assure the protection of human subjects who participate in those studies. So it's um, there are a lot there's there's a lot of um, looking out for the patient or the subjects in the trials that's built into the system specifically to prevent companies from gaming it. So as a first step, some testing would be done even before you're allowed to, to put the drug into a person? Absolutely. We, require, we have you know, a whole set of regulations that, that set forth what, companies have, what information companies have to provide to us at FDA before they're even allowed to test it in humans. Those include um, information about the, the chemical or the drug product itself, what it consists of, how exactly it's made and by whom and where. We require certain kinds of testings for toxicity in animals and in test tubes um, that all have to be in place for us to look at and make an assessment of whether or not it's okay for a company to do their first study in humans. And that first study, they have to tell us exactly what they plan to do, how many subjects will be involved, what the conditions of the testing will be, what the dose will be, how the subjects are going to be followed up and taken care of, and over what period of time. So then the pharmaceutical company uh, probably works with some um, clinical study firm. I think there are a couple of them out there. And then they work with, they coordinate the efforts of universities and physicians and other testing facilities across the country, maybe across the globe. That's right. There's a big research infrastructure that um, includes uh, academic sites, universities, that include some private physician investigators, and also these organizations that I think you're referring to called contract research organizations that help coordinate all that. Doing a clinical study is an enormous endeavor. It's very, very complicated. One of the most important parts of it is record keeping and making sure that um, everything is well documented so that there are no questions about what what drugs a patient took, what kind of care they received, 
what they experienced when they took that medication and any other number of things. It's very complicated. I understand sometime back, 15, 20 years ago, there was an effort to try to um, speed drug development, and um, one way to do that would be to put more money into the FDA, money that would come from drug companies applying for new drugs. Um, is that right? And, and if so, does the public need to worry that that the FDA is now beholden to drug companies because they're taking money from the companies? That's a really good question. And there is some background that, that might be helpful in, in looking at that historical perspective. Back in the 1980s, um, there was this phenomenon that is pop, was popularly termed a drug lag. That was, a, and the drug lag wasn't about slowness in drug development. It was more about slowness in getting drugs to the market, because at that time. When a company would submit an application to FDA, uh, first of all, we never had any idea when they were planning to submit um, an application. So there was no accountability on their part for telling us, look, get ready, we're going to be sent, we want to send in an application in six months on product X. Mm -hmm. Similarly, when they did send it in, we were under no time constraints to render a decision. Ooh, that could be bad if you're dealing we, with a bureaucracy. And we didn't. And you know what? We took forever. We got we got to the stuff when we got to it. And um, it was often years before we would make a decision. And sometimes in the course of our own review and pontificating about a product, company would send in some new information. So all the work we had just done, we'd have to go start over again. Would take even longer. Oh, that's so bad on so many levels. You you could imagine the company with a limited patent life is going like, please hurry. Oh, absolutely. But, but absolutely. even more so, the so, patients. And I would say in general, it wasn't any one party's fault or problem. It was just the system. The regulatory framework didn't have any accountability anywhere in it by anyone for for being timely. No accountability for timeliness. So. And it was absolutely the case that products were being approved more quickly in other countries where there was that kind of accountability. And the big thing that was really noticed in the the public was um, in Europe. And what really pushed the issue in the public eye was that drugs to treat HIV in particular and some cancers, life-threatening cancers, were available overseas and Patients in the U.S. didn't have access to those medicines yes, because they were lost in the bowels of the system here at FDA. And from that sprung the uh, what's called the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, through which companies pay fees not just when they submit a marketing application, but they on a regular basis they pay fees because that have to do with us listing their product and. Um, being in the queue for random inspections and that sort of thing. And it has, and by paying those fees, that funding was specifically to be used by FDA to staff up so that we could put in place a time limit on when we would come to a decision about a drug. There was never, ever, and we would never have agreed to this, 
anything in that user fee legislation that said we will approve drugs more quickly, we said we will review them on a reason, over a reasonable period of time and render a decision about approval or not. But that is not the same as promising to approve. Some people worry that, you know, just because the companies pay these, these fees, we, that FDA would be beholden and feel pushed to approve them. And I can assure you that is absolutely not the case. First, we have been able to staff up. That has been hugely beneficial. But our reviewers never see the money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. <laughs> it goes somewhere <laughs> and goes through many levels and really don't have any perception of its existence. We really are so far removed from it that we don't, I I, I honestly don't believe that it influences our day-to-day work. I I understand why there there might be a a concern about there being a perception, but having been here for a number of years, both years before and after that legislation, I don't think it's made a difference at all. I remember Oh, it was almost 20 years ago, interviewing for a reviewer's job in the Parklawn building in yeah. Rockville, Maryland. And um, I think because of of those fees, and it may have been early on in getting those fees, uh, the computer technology was suddenly upgraded and everybody had a really big monitor. But yeah. I don't think they, at that point they had time to up the staff yet, but it's good to know that that's happened. Well, it sounds like you have a, a tough job trying to balance um, getting effective products to market and improving them while screening out the ones um, screening out ones that aren't safe. It seems relatively easy to do a clinical trial to assess whether something works for a condition. You take some, a bunch of people, you give them a drug that's supposed to save their lives versus a placebo, you save more lives, great. Or, you know, you improve... Um, whatever the condition is, you lower the blood pressure, you lower the cholesterol. But how do you tell if a drug is safe? That's something I think, that's that's a real tough nut to crack. Yeah, and you know, honestly, I think we have to be quite honest that there is no medicine in the world that's perfectly safe all the time for every individual. You know, broccoli isn't safe for everyone. Water is Um, not safe if you take too much of it. Right, right. And um, so... When we say a drug is safe, it's always a relative term. It is, and what we are charged to do, and actually what the regulations say, even though they don't set a bar, a specific bar, um, they say that the drug is is safe for use in its in it for the intended condition. And so, you know, for people, so what interest? So if you think about it, what's safe to treat? A very aggressive cancer is probably different than what is safe to treat acne. acne. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny really we're both thinking different. Acne. Yeah, <laughs> and so those are the kinds of so when we start talking about medicines and whether it's safe and effective, it always has to be within the context of what it's likely to be used for. So you think about drugs that have are in the news. Um, you almost never see an uprising about cancer drugs. And those are some of the most toxic drugs ever made or that ever will be made. But it's except, usually accepted for patients with an immediately life-threatening cancer that they're going to 
they they may be willing to take that chance on those on that that bad that high risk profile of a drug. The ones that that have, you know really get us thinking are the ones that get outside of those conditions that are immediately life threatening. Um, that people expect to live with for many, many years, like diabetes or arthritis or migraine headaches or high blood pressure or high cholesterol, because they make us stop and think about, well, gee, what's worth it? And how do we know that, you know, what are the kinds of things that we value or expect from our medicine compared to what its potential downsides might be? You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're talking today with Dr. Sandy Queter, Deputy Director of the FDA's Office of New Drugs. Well, Dr. Queter, you mentioned things that make the news. Um, Avandia was in the news. I, I imagine it's probably a great example of this uh, assessing drug safety that you're talking about. Avandia is a really good example, and it's been, you know, this has been a... Um, a difficult drug to assess and and come to a conclusion about for a number of years now. It's a drug to treat a complicated medical condition, uh, type 2 or adult onset diabetes. That's a condition that there aren't any real, you know, knock down, drag out, knock your socks, beautiful treatments for. Mm-hmm. Yet it's a condition, and it's a condition that is associated with many complications over many years and usually requires patients to move around from one medication to another or add medications. So, um, and the patients have a lot of adverse effects from the disease itself, such as, you know, visual problems, heart attacks, vascular disease, strokes, blindness, all of those things are associated with the disease. Um, for the mo- for many many decades, the main goal of treating diabetes has been to control blood sugar because mm-hmm. it's well shown that controlling blood sugar over the long haul helps prevent some of those complications of the disease. For the most part, there's not been much expectation that the drugs themselves would prevent the, those diseases, but by controlling the blood pressure, the downstream effect would be to control those bad uh, disease consequences. Blood sugar. You mentioned blood pressure. Oh, I'm I mean, sorry. Blood sugar. But Thank of course, you. Same Thank thing you. Would be true they have for, high blood pressure too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, with Avandia, there have been questions raised about whether that drug itself may put diabetics at higher risk for having heart problems, um, cardiovascular complications like heart attacks in particular. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're studying diabetics and you're treating who you know already have risk factors for the disease, figuring out if one diabetic medicine versus another is making that heart condition worse or not is really tough. And there have been, if you look and compare a Vandia to a sugar pill or, you know, a placebo, mm-hmm with not too much sugar in it for diabetics, yeah. uh-huh. it, lo- it, it looks like, gee, there might be a risk here. Do you compare it to other treatments for diabetes? Look, they look sort of the same. They don't look too much different. 
So it's very, it's been very, very hard to sort out. Um, my guess is if there was an enormous effect, if it was really uh, an enormous safety disadvantage to people, well, then it wouldn't be so hard to sort out. You know, Steve, that is a, that's a really good point. If it was a really big risk, we'd know the answer, and there'd be no controversy about this. But what it appears is that there may be a, you know, a smaller risk, which is really hard to find looking at these studies and looking at, and, and particularly looking at post-marketing data. Um, so, you know, the question that faces FDA is, well, what do you do in a situation of uncertainty like this? Do you go ahead and say, there's a concern here, so the concern means that the drug has to come off the market and no one should be able to take it? Or do you say, there's a concern here, patients and physicians who might prescribe this need to understand that this is a possible, possible issue and, um, and decide whether or not to take the drug. You know, it's not something that people go to an over-the-counter aisle and purchase on their own. It's a prescription that we specifically warrant, you know, that oversight by, uh, by a healthcare provider. And that's a really tough zone to be in. There are many people who feel strongly that, you know, um, the physician and patient make that decision always, always, always. Other people who feel equally as strongly that it's the government's job to make those decisions for society. Um, probably the right answer is somewhere in the middle. And where we find ourselves and why we've had several big expert panel discussions of this in the public is because it is such, it is such a tough area. You mentioned post-marketing studies. What exactly are those and, and how do they help? What, you know, when drugs go to the market, they've usually been studied in, um, you know, several thousand people. Um, if it's a rare condition, many, many fewer than that. If it's a common, very, very common condition, probably more than that. Mm-hmm. We know, we'll know about most of the side effects of a drug at that time particularly the big ones, the ones that are more common. What, but we, we know that it's impossible to know everything there is to know about a drug before it's marketed or we'd be studying it forever. But we know the big stuff. And it is always the case that once a drug is marketed, we learn things over time as, as more and more people are exposed to the drug, who maybe are a little bit different than the people who are in the clinical studies, try as we might. We can't include everyone in the population in all the clinical studies. Again, mm-hmm. nothing would ever reach the market. Um, oftentimes, we require companies, if we have a concern about a, a a safety issue, a hint of something from those clinical studies that we couldn't quite put our finger on. If we think it could be an important risk, we will require a company to do a study after the drug is marketed, a post-marketing clinical study to sort out that issue in much more detail. And we do that all the time. You know, one of the things I think people worry about is they, they worry about the idea of putting a drug in their body and they think, well, maybe I'd just get by with something natural instead. I have the general sense that, that approved drugs, uh, we understand and know them so much better as opposed to some uh, herbal thing that, for, for one, has thousands of chemicals in it. We don't know what they do. They haven't been tested for efficacy, much less safety. And then there's the problem of 
companies adulterating those products with real drugs and not telling people. Um, what can we tell the public about um, FDA-approved products versus the other things they have access to? Well, I, you know, you've raised a really important issue. And FDA, we at FDA, we take overseeing drugs, um, prescription drugs and over-the-counter marketed products, and making sure those products meet a, not only a safety and effectiveness standard, that they really do work and are can generally be expected to be safe, but also a manufacturing standard that what is in that capsule or in that tablet is exactly what it says on that package and not any more and not any less and no extras. (laughs) Um, That is a really high bar. It's the highest bar in the world. For products that are um, dietary supplements, um, there is no such reg- there is no such r- such rigorous um, regulatory framework, and it is absolutely the case that most of those products, the kinds of tests that they undergo, are so far short of what other um, standard allopathic medicines require that they are, they really aren't even comparable and, you know and, uh, so I, and from a manufacturing standpoint um, there are some standards some volu- you know mostly voluntary standards um, but um, you know with some exception we, we have a better framework in place today but most of it is not FDA regulated sometimes you know uh, people may ask about this and I tell them look even if they did a test, it wouldn't be meaningful because unlike drugs, FDA-approved products, where we just now take for granted the fact that they are the same from lot to lot, day to day, we have no such expectations for non-FDA-controlled products. Right. And, and, and there are certainly companies and industry groups in the dietary supplement industry that really have tried to establish standards. And um, we certainly, you know, as someone who, in, in, that's not an area of my expertise, but those aren't products that, um, that, that we see in, in, in the drugs world. And I would say the, um, just simply if you just look at the number of staff overseeing those products in the, in our other center, they're regulated in the food center compared to drugs. It's it's remarkable difference. Dr. Queer, we hear a lot about health care reform. Uh, will health care reform, is it's past or future plans for health care reform going to affect the FDA? You know, I, I think that um, health care reform will affect us as as society takes a hard look at how it makes decisions about medicines and funding and, and funding um, funding prescription drug coverage, we already see a great deal of emphasis on something called comparative effectiveness, where um, uh, payers are very interested in assuring that they really understand the difference between product A, B, C, D, and E all to treat the same condition. That's not that's not an area that FDA regulations require to be studied, but we are of course um, 
understand where those concerns come from. And we who are here at FDA, we many of us continue to practice medicine, so we have the, some of the same questions. And I think you'll see some of that. We already see some of that coming out in the kinds of studies that get done of new medicines that are that are seeking to enter the marketplace. Do, do any of these economic um, economic issues affect FDA thinking? You know, if, if a company comes out with a a new product, and hey, it's just as effective and just as safe as a current medicine that maybe has gone generic, only it costs 100 times as much. Uh, Is the FDA going to approve a drug like that? You know, we do have a whole set of, of, of regulations about generic drugs, and in general, we are some of the best fans of generic drugs because we take assuring sameness to the products that um, they are the same as very seriously. Um, we are not we are not allowed to take into consideration cost specifically of medicines as we make decisions about their approval. Um, we have no idea you know when a product comes in where the company's going to price that drug, unlike in some other countries that actually render decisions about price. We don't do that, and we don't see any of that information, but we do review rigorously you know, generic applications. And because we know from a public health standpoint, access to medicines in this country is largely driven by financial resources. And so we believe they're extremely important. Dr. Greer, thank you so much for your time today. Um, do you have any suggestions for our, our audience on how they can improve their health or their health care? I sure do. System? I think oh, the first great. thing you should do is take really good care of yourself and do all the things you can to control your health, like eating well and exercising as much as you can and minimizing stress in your life. Second, I would say take only the medicines that you need, whether that's medicines, and, and, and if you need them, if, your doc, if you and your doctor agree that you need a medicine, take it the way your doctor and pharmacist prescribe it. And then don't take anything extra that you don't need. <laughs> that's my best advice. That's very good advice. Well, thank you so much for being on the program today. You're so welcome. The FDA clearly has a tough job because we don't live in a perfect world. I mean, it would be ideal if we could have medicines that were safe, effective, and affordable. But, you know, you might jokingly say um, safe, effective, and affordable, pick any two. Um, sometimes you might even think pick one. Um, it's, it's very difficult to assure the safety of anything. Even, even too much water is dangerous. Medicines are drugs. They have side effects. And hopefully... You'll, if you need a medication, you'll find one that's risks and downside um, is uh, more than made up for by its upside potential. Trying to balance this um, and give the public uh, effective drugs, drugs that work, drugs that are affordable, and especially drugs that are safe, um, it, it's really a tough job. And I think the FDA is doing a good job balancing these um, these, these different issues that it faces. Of course, you know, people who have diseases want to see drugs come to market faster. People want to make sure the drugs they take are safe. Making sure all this happens is a balance, and I think they're doing a pretty good job. If you want to learn more about the FDA, you can check out their website at fda.gov. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the program today. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. 
who, it turns out, is in New York trying to see how many um, pianos, uh, the um, outdoor pianos there, he can play. Well, until you join us again, I wish you the best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.